As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to this replay of Ask N.T. Write Anything, where we go back into the archives to bring you the best of the thought and theology of Tom Wright, answering questions submitted by you, the listener. You can find more episodes as well as many more resources for exploring faith at premierunbelievable.com, and registering there will unlock access through the newsletter to updates, free bonus videos, and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now for today's replay of Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Well, welcome back to today's podcast. And uh, we've got a couple of episodes coming up. The first today on the issue of suffering. We'll try and tackle some of the more uh, pastoral questions next time. Um, and uh, and this comes through so often in different ways. We've probably done two, three or four even episodes really now, Tom, in the, in the podcast series that mm-hmm. deal with issues around pain and suffering. Because it's just a reality, isn't it, in people's life? And it's it, it comes in all shapes and forms. Um, uh, this first question um, that we're going to hear from Dave in Ottawa um, is on the subject of Alzheimer's. Um, I don't know, though, if you've seen the, the video that um, hmm. was doing the rounds um, uh, towards the end of the year, where uh, it's extraordinary sort of um, montage, really, of a, an elderly woman, I think, in a care home in, in Spain, who was a former prima ballerina and um, when played Swan Lake would begin to to remember the moves and physically um you know sort of almost gracefully from the depths of herself somehow which had obviously forgotten so much physically the this was awoken and and contrasted that against images of a ballerina doing that that dance and very moving um seemed to trigger a, a lot of people seem to to resonate with that and um well we we on our unbelievable blog wrote sort of something likening it to those words uh, of Paul on this um, present body and that future body we all have, that there's something almost that resonates with that about that we, we don't really believe this is the end, that somehow we will dance again. Um, I don't know what your reactions were if you've seen that that video. Yes, uh, I, I just thought, it, I, I didn't actually watch the whole thing, but I, somebody showed me a bit of it and I thought, mm. oh, wow. And then I, I, I think I read in the paper or something mm. about it as well. Um, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a beautiful thing, a very moving thing. Um, and it, it resonates with what I've heard from people who've worked closely with Alzheimer's sufferers or similar, um, similar sufferers um, about the things that do remain. And clearly music is really, really important, pretty deep down as one of those things. A dear friend whose photograph I can see as I look here um, was Bishop of Litchfield, Keith Sutton, when I was Dean of Litchfield. I knew him well. And Keith's wife, Jeannie, was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's when she was in her 50s. And uh, Keith uh, kept her at home. He didn't put her in a care home. He had 
day and night carers come in. He carried on his job as a busy bishop <clears throat> and would spend all the spare time he could with her. And he said, and it was very moving, that um, they would sometimes watch the television program together where, the, uh, where people were singing hymns. And even though Jeannie, his wife, didn't even know who he was and was completely incoherent the rest of the time, she would sing along with the hymns. She, that They were still absolutely in her mind and other similar things, that the music just brought out something which was still there, even though you mightn't have guessed it until that happened. And I think it's such a mystery. We just don't know very much about it. And I, I mean, Dave's question, um, Dave from Ottawa, he, he, he says something about that maybe he will one day forget the Lord, but I know he won't forget well, me. Well, let's read Dave's question. Let, yes, I, I haven't referenced question. it properly yeah. yet. Sorry, and, yes, and, yes. And, and, um, but it was his question that made me think of that, that yeah. example. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, um, here, here is Dave's question. Um, it says, I'm so blessed to be listening to the podcast over the years. Thank you, Dave. Uh, a little while ago, I was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. It was not so much a surprise to me as I'm the ninth member on my mother's side to be diagnosed. I know I will someday forget the Lord, but I know he will never forget me. What would you like to say to the many people in the world with this particular disability, which some have said to be in many ways a theological disease? <clears throat> yeah, I'd not heard that phrase a theological disease before, but I assume that it means that it raises the theological question that if somebody is no longer able to function mentally and with their mind and emotions working together, um, has something happened to them as a human being? And I think I want to say, yes, something has happened to them as a human being, but I don't think it's a complete denial. I mean, there are so many things that happen to us as human beings which seem a denial of the person that we once were when we were in our 20s or 30s or whatever it might be. Um, and yet in other respects, maybe we are meant to be more uh, more image-bearing more, more capable of bearing God's image than we were before. I don't know. Um, I think what I want to say here um, is that we don't know whether, Dave, whether you and others like you will forget the Lord, just like we can't tell whether that ballerina had actually forgotten the moves until they played the music and here her body remembered. And likewise, my friend's uh, severely stricken wife, who, um, who could remember all the words to the hymns because the music just carried those memories. And I've known other elderly people whose minds were in other respects failing who could still recite the poems that they'd learnt when they were seven or eight or nine at school and so on. So it's, it's a mystery. And I'm also struck by an elderly priest I, I remember hearing about from a friend of his who was... Um, beginning to find that in the same way his, his mind was going. And his response was that for many years he had prayed to the Lord, take my life, take my heart, take my mind. And he said, if now he wants to take my mind, then that's up to him. And there's a sense of an appropriate resignation rather than Dylan Thomas's raging against the dying of the light and so on. But there is also, of course, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead. Um, that yes, of course, we our bodies will crumble and decay, our minds will crumble and decay. Sometimes the one happens in advance of the other. But the whole Christian hope is not based on, let's hope we can make it to 80 or 85 or 90 um, while we've still got all our faculties, wouldn't that be nice perhaps? But rather, 
that God has a new body, a new mind, uh, a risen self ready for us so that in the new creation, that's who we will be. And that's what we have to work towards all the time, even though that's really, really tough. And my heart goes out to Dave because knowing enough already to know what it's likely going to be like must be very seriously worrying. It's like sort of facing a slow-moving car crash and not being able to do anything about it. And so I, I shall pray for Dave yes. and for others like him. And and I think that equally there's that sense, isn't there, for those who, who care for relatives with dementia, Alzheimer's and so on, yeah. that to some extent, you know, you lose the person to some extent. Um, yep. Yep. But there's still remnants there of, yep. of that person's personality and, and memory and everything else. And I, I, and it is just a very confusing, difficult time. It's, it's, it's a very gray area of humanity, it is. isn't it, it is. at that point? Absolutely. And I think, yes, that calls for resources and reserves of emotional uh, ability to give and give and give. And again, another, another reference, the Irish poet Michal O'Shiel, when his... Uh, late wife Breed was dying, uh, started off with Parkinson's, but then it went into some form of dementia. And Muhal wrote that amazing book of poems, which he'd had as a sort of a diary of, of watching over her until she was no longer able to be at home and was in a care home around the corner. Um, I think it's called One Crimson Thread. Uh, and, and you just feel, I didn't know I was going to be called upon to love and love and love. Uh, to love this person who doesn't even seem to know me anymore. But that seems to be what we are called to do. And that that's tough. Um, and yeah, maybe yeah. many of us have got to think about that sort of thing in advance, because we may well be called upon to do it. Um, and those who do, like my friend Keith Sutton, and like Michal, um, are a shining example to the rest of us. That's what your mm. marriage vows actually meant. Yes. For better mm. or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And I don't I don't mean to be judgmental in any way to those who who perhaps do go in this direction, but I think there's a sadness I find in the fact that this the reality of this is as an increasing reality among um the elderly population has led to uh people choosing to end their lives um choosing to yes. go down the, the route of uh, euthanasia and so on because somehow they say well I wouldn't be me anymore yes. but for me yes. that that is something sad because it almost it it means that if I cannot be this then I I it is not worth living anymore mm. and for me that that almost mm. idolatrizes the mm that aspect of who you are that if i yeah. cannot be this if i cannot be in command in this way any longer i i yeah. don't want this life and quite i i think i share exactly what you said that, that i i don't want to be judgmental and say oh how silly you should never be like that because i haven't faced that um at the same time i would very firmly adhere to the long-term jewish and christian uh, teaching which is that life is a gift from god and it's god's business what he does with it and when and so on. Of course, the fact that we've now got much superior medical science than we had two or 300 years ago means that people are living longer. And this is more of a problem for more people more of the time than it used to be. People who would have died quite young in days gone by um, simply are living longer and facing these, these problems. But I think partly just something I'm with you on this as a very deep reaction against. But also when you start to think of the effects on the rest of the family, that um, 
uh, you know, the children and grandchildren saying, well, of course, granny decided dot, dot, dot. Um, and I think the long-term effects of, of potential guilt there, uh, should they have been glad, should they not have been glad, um, it gets us into some very murky areas, and I don't think we ought to go there. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash NTWrite. That's premierinsight.org forward slash NTWrite. Thank you. Let's get another sort of theological question in here. Um, Lana in California asks, is suffering and pain a natural consequence of sin, like stepping out of a safe terrain into a dangerous terrain, or is God actively inflicting the pain? Obviously, I'm much more comfortable thinking of it as the former, but reading (laughs) passages like Genesis 3, in which God tells Eve, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, leave me grappling and anxious about the character of God. Would love to hear your thoughts on this, Tom. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are many things in scripture where words are put into God's mouth, which do seem almost to anthropomorphize. This is what I'm going to do, et cetera, et cetera. And when we stand back, we say, well, God made this world in a mysterious and beautiful way, but it was a world which had many things in it, which he then wanted his human creatures to take forward as a project rather than um, having it simply as a tableau. And that there are times like that when I would much more be inclined to say um, what Lana says about like stepping out of a safe terrain onto da- into dangerous terrain, that, well, you have gone to this place and God is not going to say, oh, well, we'll um, stop creation working at that point in order to make it less painful for you or something. Like if I drive around a sharp bend at 90 miles an hour, I can't expect God to say, oh, well, we'll just stop the laws of physics for a moment to stop you getting into trouble there. It, it's it's going to be more complicated than that. But I think I would want to go some way down that line. Um, because the character of God, as we know in Scripture, can't be just read off one sentence or another here or there. And particularly in the Old Testament, so many things about God are part of different trajectories, different perceptions, which ultimately meet in the person of Jesus. And I argued this in my little book on the pandemic, that um, uh, we see on the one hand, God saying, if you do this and this and this, I will punish you for that. And on the other hand, Um, people like Job suffering terrible things and people saying, oh, God's punishing you. And it's quite clear from the way the book is set up that that's not the case at all. How do those two go together? The answer is they only go together when we see them meeting 
in the cross of Jesus, where God is punishing sin, but where it is also an innocent sufferer saying, my God, why did you abandon me? And so many of these things, what is God doing in the world? The first and last Christian answer should be, God is being Jesus in the world. Now, let's work it out around that. And that doesn't mean, oh, well, that's all right, then there won't ever be any pain. No, far from it. Jesus said, take up the cross and follow me. We live in a dangerous and painful world, and God has come into our midst not to magically take the pain away, but to share and bear the pain of the world and to ask us to join him in that pilgrimage towards the new creation, which will involve us as well in suffering, not because God wants to make life nasty for us, but because the world as it has become is a nasty place. And if we are Jesus people, we are to be part of those who share that pain so that the world may be redeemed. And that is written right across the New Testament, whether it's in Mark or in Romans or First Peter or Revelation, that that is how it's seen. A lot of people have read the book, um, God and the Pandemic, but of course you, you sort of very briefly spelled out some of your thoughts quite early on in the pandemic in uh, an article for Time magazine that was shared quite widely and did generate quite a bit of controversy as well as people read that. Um, obviously you can't say everything you necessarily want to say in the, the word limit that you're given there. But Joshua Hamilton in Pennsylvania says, I, I appreciated your article in Time magazine about God lamenting with us through this time of pandemic. Of course, it was met with criticism, specifically that it presented God as passable rather than impossible. I didn't not get that take, rather that you were demonstrating that God, despite his impassibility, can and does enter into our grief with the intention of redeeming these moments and reconciling people to himself through them. So I wonder if you could present your views on God's impossibility <laughs> and help explain that article in light of those views. Um, and he very much looks forward to you addressing that. So perhaps just to define these terms for those who are maybe scratching their heads or haven't read that Time magazine article, what do we mean by God being passable versus impassable? Yes, passability comes from the Latin passio, which is about suffering. Um, and there's a technical problem here because um, suffering can be seen in terms of, oh, this is very painful, or it can be seen in the more technical sense of um, something being done to me as opposed to me doing something. So I am suffering the effects of this light, even though it's not causing me pain. I am the... the, the um, the passive partner when it comes to me and this light shining on me or whatever. So I think part of the problem in the early church was with people who believed that if God is God in any meaningful sense, God must always be the active one, always be the one who is uh, giving out, who is pouring out of himself, etc. And the idea that God could be passive, whether in that general sense, or let alone in the sense of actually suffering, would seem like a contradiction in terms. Now, into that question of a classical view of a God who couldn't possibly be other than the initiator, the actor, the one who initiates everything, into that there comes the figure of Jesus, and the Jesus who weeps in Gethsemane, the Jesus who in John 11 weeps at the tomb of his friend, the Jesus who dies on the cross, and in Matthew and Mark shouts out, my God, why did you abandon me? Quote from Psalm 22. How do you do 
Christology and an impassable God. And this has been a huge topic of theological conversation over the last generation, particularly associated with Jürgen Moltzmann, the great uh, German scholar who is astonishingly still alive and lecturing in his mid-90s now. Um, my son and I went to see him in Westminster Abbey not that long ago, bless him. Um, and many people have found, particularly after the experience of all the suffering of the 20th century and two world wars, and Maltman was a prisoner of war in the Second World War, etc., um, that the idea of an impassable God somehow away from the process, um, beckoning us to come and join him in his impassibility or whatever, just doesn't cut it. That just doesn't do what the Christian gospel ought to do. Whereas the idea of a God who in the person of Jesus says, I am with you in trouble, I am taking it upon myself, and I'm going to bring you through this, that actually sounds more like the gospel as we read it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul. So then you've got the question of a kind of a classical theology which says you can't have a God who suffers versus a Trinitarian classical theology, which says that there is one God and only one God, and Jesus himself is the second person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is the third person in that Trinity, which sends us to passages like, and this is where I was working from, like Romans 8, where in Romans 8, the whole creation is groaning in travail, fine. We know that. We know about earthquakes. We know about wars and pandemics and so on. That's always gone on. This should not be a surprise. Where should we be in that? And it isn't the case that the church should be above it and should be looking down from a great height saying, well, we're all right because we know God, so we're not involved in that. No, the church is right in the middle of it, as historically has always been the case. The church pastorally and practically involved. We ourselves, Paul says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves as we await our adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. But then where is God? And the answer is God the Spirit is groaning within us with inarticulate groanings, verse 26. And so if you have any Trinitarian theology at all, and Paul obviously does in Romans 8, you have to say God the Spirit is groaning inarticulately within us, within the pain of the world. And then, verse 27, the one who searches the hearts, that is God the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people according to God's will. That is an extraordinary picture of the unity of God holding together the pain of the world and the pain of the church as well. And then Paul says this shapes us according to the pattern of Christ, that he might be the firstborn in a large family. In other words, in the mystery of the Trinity, you can talk about the ultimate sovereignty and impassibility of God if you want, but you must never break the link between the Father and the Spirit shaping us according to the pattern of the Son, the Son who cried out, my God, why did you abandon me? Now, I haven't answered the question. What I've done is to put it back into its biblical context and suggest that urgently that's what we should do. And especially with John's gospel as well. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word wept at the tomb of his friend in Bethany in John 11. Jesus didn't do the weeping insofar as he was human. John would say he did the weeping insofar as he was God. And I would say, just, just go figure, take it from there 
and let's rethink and repray our vision of God accordingly. Mm, wow. Well, uh, I can recommend highly because it helped me to think through this issue um, when you had a great conversation with Miroslav Wolf on his podcast oh, for the oh. life of the world. And that will be in the archive. I'll try and make sure to link to it from today's show. Right. You, I'd you, forgotten you that. A, Thank you. You had a really great conversation with him about about the book, God and the Pandemic, but it was in light of that Time article as well, for which you'd mm-hmm. come under some criticism. But um, yes, uh, lament. Uh, that, that was really helpful. Mm. Um, final question then, just for today's uh, episode. Um, and, and this sort of, yeah, encapsulates some of this stuff we've already been talking about. But again, Melissa, again, out in California, says that I had a health problem for many years, and I believe God had compassion for the pain I was experiencing. Now, I understand suffering to be an unavoidable aspect of life, but he did heal me through diagnosis and treatment, and I consider this a gift from God. Now, while I understand the danger to view a relationship with Jesus transactionally, I also see a tendency to glorify suffering, which feels damaging to those actually suffering. Doesn't new creation mean poverty and pain are diminished, which would then suggest that it is ultimately God's will. that There is health and wealth, as crude as that may sound, for all people. Could you speak into this? So, yes, I suppose uh, uh, Melissa doesn't want us to lose the fact that she believes God does do good things for people, that healing happens, even prosperity sometimes, you know, whatever. Mm. And and that we shouldn't wallow necessarily in a view that suffering is our lot and we just have to bear it as best we can and see God's purposes through it somehow. Yes. Uh, at so many points, it's vital to keep a balance in all of this, isn't it? And, and, and Melissa, I'm, I'm totally with you. I do believe God answers prayers for healings sometimes through the skilled attention of the medical professionals and sometimes despite the fact that they say there's nothing more we can do. And I know people who are alive today having been given up by the doctors as being completely hopeless and about to die and people are praying and that person is still alive. Equally, I said in a sermon recently, I had two friends who were both diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in the summer of 2015. Both of them were part of church fellowships that were praying for them. Both of them had expert medical care. One of them was dead within six months, and the other one was amazingly healed and is alive uh, uh, today. And in fact, I'm going to be, I hope, talking to him on the phone in the next day or two. Um, I don't understand why that happens. I do not have a theory to explain it. I merely see in the Bible and in real life that God can and does heal people some of the time for purposes best known to himself, and other times this just doesn't happen. My parade example is Acts 12, where at the beginning of Acts 12, Herod has James, the brother of John, killed with the sword, and he's going to do the same to Peter, but the church is praying, and Peter gets out of jail free and continues to have a career as a traveling missionary, etc. And yes, he dies a pretty nasty death at the end, according to legend, but So what was going on there? If I was James's mother, I wouldn't like Acts 12. I would say, well, we were praying for James as well. Why didn't God rescue him? And that is part of the mystery. And it's because of that that there is simultaneously in the church this sense that, 
Yes, suffering happens. It will happen to all of us in one form or another, emotional, physical, mental, um, spiritual, political, social, whatever. Suffering is going to happen, but we don't wallow in it. We lament, which is a way of saying we don't understand what's going on. It doesn't mean we've got the solution, but then the lament will sometimes, perhaps quite often, lead to a prayer for God to rescue us from that moment and to restore us to health and or wealth as it may be, although that tends to be a kind of allure, and I think Melissa is aware of that phrase, health and wealth being a bit of a carrot that's dangled in front of us, as though we were to strain forward for that, forgetting that for most of the world's history, and for most Christians throughout history, um, health has been sporadic and brief, uh, the death rate has been in people's 20s and 30s, usually at the most, uh, and wealth has been very limited, to put it mildly, for most of history and to this day. Only a few people in the world are seriously wealthy, and, and so on and so on. So it's, it is always a balance. But at the same time, I don't want us simply to sink back and say, oh, well, we're all going to suffer, so what? Um, because the kingdom of God is about God being with us in that in order to bring signs of new creation. And it's that business of the signposts of new creation that I think we ought to be emphasizing more and more. And the, the answering of prayer for healing would certainly be among those signposts, even if that doesn't happen as often as we might like. But there are many other prayers as well, which when God answers them, this is a sign that ever since the resurrection of Jesus, new creation has been pushing up green shoots. And one day that new creation will happen. And our task is to be signpost makers for that future, even if in the nature of the case, that is going to be painful mm. in some ways, in ways that we don't expect and we certainly won't like. Yeah. So we rejoice with you, Melissa, in mm. your healing. Absolutely. And we, we pray that it will be a signpost for others towards that ultimate healing and, and reconciliation with God. But thank you so much for all the questions. Um, we've got questions of a pastoral nature, but in a similar area around issues of mm. suffering and so on that we'll do on the next podcast. But for now, Tom, thank you very much again. Thank you. Good to be with you again.